You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Okay, this lecture is titled, What is Truth? We saw last time that all knowledge comes through us from the senses, but not all knowledge is sensorial. The principle of contradiction, for example, we noticed could not have come from the senses. The principle of contradiction is a general idea. Sensorial knowledge gives knowledge of particulars. The intellect is what we call the power that gets to truth. But wait a second. There's the whole question that seems to be prevalent in our modern thinking of, can we obtain truth? And particularly those involved in the sciences, or that have read about science, will have heard of Godel's theorem. It's often brought up to say that, well, can we really come to truth, given Godel's theorem? And so we, we have the whole issue of what is truth? To unwind all this and answer our question, what is truth, is going to take us through some really profound philosophy that's going to add to what we learned in the last chapter. And let's start with Godel's theorem because of its prevalence in our scientific thinking. Even when people haven't known it explicitly, you're going to have known of it sort of implicitly. We saw that we always move from what is more known to what is less known. Godel's theorem is very closely associated with philosophical idealism. In fact, we can come up with a test to see whether you're a philosophical idealist by using Godel's theorem. And let's do that. First, let me tell you what Godel's theorem proved. It proved two things. In a system of ideas that are at least as complicated as arithmetic, that there are propositions within that system that cannot be proved either true or false, and that the very consistency of that system itself cannot be proved. So here's the test. Given Godel's theorem, does that mean we cannot know with certainty? After all, we can't even know if the system is self-consistent. If the system's not consistent, then nothing in it makes any sense. So answer that question to yourself. Does that mean we can't know with certainty? Why or why not? If you answer, yes, you are an idealist. Again, this is a particular use of the word idealist. It's called the philosophical idealist, whereby you think that ideas come first. Many educated in our scientific culture have these leanings. So if you answered yes, or if you answered no and you didn't know why you answered no, then you have philosophical idealist leanings. Many in our culture have these leanings, so you're not alone. My student Bill, who didn't believe reality is real, is not so rare, given this tendency of philosophical idealism in our culture that comes from the modern sciences, and we'll see why in a little bit later. Idealists think that our knowledge is only what's in our head, only of our own ideas. To the contrary, we've seen that in order to understand reality, we have to be willing to conform to it. In fact, we'll see the profundity of this as we move along. That truth has to do with a conformity with reality, not with a system of ideas. An idealist expects ideas to always contain their own proof, because he thinks this is all he knows. Godel's theorem basically, and I discuss it more in the text than I can here, uses numbers and the liar's paradox to prove this so-called completeness and inconsistency theorems. One could see, however, that this theorem is true by the interconnectedness of things. Basically, when you're trying to take a system of ideas and 
chop them off and put them in one place and keep them away from the rest of reality, you're going to have problems because all those things that you took from reality are interconnected with reality. Just because you chop them off does not mean they lose that relation, I should say. Our psychological state is revealed by Godel's theorems. To understand what the context of this theorem is in our cultural mindset, we must understand more about the problem of truth and something that we'll call beings of reasons. Let's recap what we learned about sensorial knowledge. Sensorial knowledge is the source of all of our knowledge, first of all. Everything that we have comes through the senses. Imagination, that was the power not just of manipulating images, but also of any use of images, allows recall as well as sensorial knowledge by phantasms or images. Imagination can also dissemble and put together different images. So you can have, for example, have seen Lassie, who's a brown and white collie, and have seen a black car in your imagination, you can take the black off of the car and stick it on Lassie, so you can have a black collie. And people that have a good imagination, in this sense of manipulating images, you know, an example would be a boy who thought of a purple dog on a chocolate mountain next to a unicorn. This is all replacing images and manipulating them around, and that's also called imagination. But we're using it in the general sense, that's the more typical common usage of the word, but we're using it in the general sense of any use of images, not just the manipulation, but even the recall. Again, when I took the glass, I acquired the coldness of the glass in its specific form, the form of the coldness of the glass as the form of the coldness of the glass. It didn't change my form, I acquired that form. The image of the feminism is that by which I apprehend the coldness of the glass. This is an important point. It is not that which I know. The image is not that which I know. The image, and I will call it phantasm to be generic, to keep in mind that it's not just visual sensorial things we're talking about, but like the smell of a hamburger is going to be referred to as a phantasm. So when I reach and touch this glass, the phantasm is that by which I apprehend the glass. The phantasm is a means. To say otherwise is to not put first things first. This is an important point because if the phantasm is that which you know, then you don't really know the glass. And that's not true. You know that you know the glass. If I start in my head, there's no way out. That's the thing to remember about the idealist tendency. So what then is an idea, moving on to intellectual knowledge? Ideas are general, so they cannot be phantasms which are particular. We've said that. An example of an idea is, say, an animal. And the idea of an animal may be attended by, you know, you have giraffes and zebras and lions floating around in your mind, a whole zoo of animals. And you might just say, well, that's all an idea is, is a collection of these images. Well, it's much more than a collection of images. Knowing a set of animals, if one tries to say, okay, it's this set of images, then what you do is you say, okay, well, that doesn't include this, and you put that in there, and you add another animal to you, you say, okay, well, is this the set? No, this isn't the set. I have to add this. And how are you doing this? How are you adding these things? Because you have the idea of an animal, the general idea of an animal. You know what an animal is, and you can piece together this set. In fact, we know an animal as an animal even if we've never seen or imagined that particular animal. Even an animal that you couldn't piece together by the images in your mind, when you saw it, you'd say that's an animal. And you can continue this. Let's say you wanted to say an animal is anything that moves, so all the set of images that move. Well, that doesn't work, because baseballs, rain, rocks, they all move. So you have to say, let's refine it, anything that can move itself. 
Well, notice the process here is all being driven by the fact that you have the general idea of an animal, not the specific idea of an animal. Even more force comes when you think of a circle. An image of a circle is not what a circle is. A circle is the set of points equidistant from a given point. And that thing can be any size, any color, any shape. You can give it hardness if you want. Whatever, that is not the circle. The circle is a general thing. And we should note here that the ability to sort something is not the same as knowing something. Something can be done completely automatically without knowing what you're doing, but still nonetheless do it. For example, not knowing what a circle is does not mean you cannot sort circles. Or not knowing what in the heck Shakespeare is saying does not stop you from reading Shakespeare. There is a mechanical sort of manipulation of things that can occur as well. Finally, we're ready to say where our ideas come from. Our ideas are abstracted from a phantasm. The first time you see something circular is where you abstract the idea of a circle. So if I see the sun, I can abstract the idea of the boundary of the sun, which is a circle. Or if I see a pie, I can abstract the idea of a circle. The intellect comes from two Latin words meaning to read within. So you have a particular and you're pulling out, you're reading in between the lines of what that sensorial thing that's presented to you is. The intellect sees what is not present in the phantasm as phantasm. It sees deeper into the thing that the sensorial knowledge is capable of. Something is presented by way of the phantasm that the phantasm itself cannot deal with. The intellect makes visible what is hidden to the sensorial power. It pulls out the essence. Say if you see a dog, the intellect's able to pull out the dogness of the dog. The essence then we'll see is that which a thing is primarily. So right after we know things are, very quickly after that we start asking what they are. But as soon as you know something is, you know vaguely what it is. And that essence gets more refined as you analyze it. Again, we've got to bring this home, this point. Phantasms are that by which we know. Not that which we know, but that by which we know. The phantasm brings me in contact with the glass. Remember, we know things first not phantasms or ideas. Ideas are also that by which we know. They are not that which we know. Idealists think ideas are that which we know. And we must somehow figure out how to get back to the real world. But once you've cut that connection, there's no way back. If all you start with knowing is what's in your head, then there's nothing to compare to see if your thinking is right. Because you've said that all you know is what your ideas in your head are. And this is what happened to Kant. And that's why he constantly says, that we don't know the thing itself. We don't know anything, he says. But these distinctions make us bring home an important point, that is the fact that phantasms and ideas are that by which we know, that, that which we know. So phantasms and ideas are what we call pure signs. What's a pure sign? Well, an instrumental sign is like a stop sign. And it has two sort of levels to it. The most basic level is the fact that the stop sign is a red hexagon with white stuff on it. But that's what it is. Secondarily, somebody has painted the white stuff on it with these hieroglyphics called English. We've assigned the meaning STOP means don't go anymore when you get to the intersection. So primarily, it's a steel object hung on a stick. But referentially, it tells you something to do. Unlike this, a pure sign is purely referential. It has a pure referential existence. Its whole point is to take you to something else. 
you only know it exists by thinking back and saying, there must be something by which I know that thing, because I do know that thing. Similarly for phantasms. The same thing applies for both the general object that brings you in contact with general things called ideas, and the particular object of the phantasm brings you in contact with this particular glass. So from observing Fido, I abstract from my sensorial knowledge the idea of dogdom. In principle, you only need one dog to do this. If you have a reasonably healthy dog, you should be able to get the whole idea of dogness. But of course, in practice, and what's more fitting with our nature is what this word means, connatural with our nature, it's good to have a whole mess of them. Because then, you know, if the dog needs to be chopped open to learn something about them, whatever you destroy in the process, you can look at it a different dog. Or if you're watching this particular dog, and this particular dog doesn't live long enough for you to take him to a different environment to see how he behaves in a different environment. The point is, is that every dog has dogness, and so we can learn about dogness from an individual dog in principle. I receive the idea of what Fido is, the essence of Fido. I acquire the substantial form of Fido, yet I don't physically become Fido. So somehow I get Fido dogness without becoming myself dogness. Because if I took on dogness in a physical change, I would become a dog. And that would be the end of my ability to know, because I would not exist anymore. So this is a type of change, like sensorial knowledge, that is not material. Remember, a material change is when one piece of matter takes on a different form, whether it's an accidental form or a substantial form. So this is not material. That's all immaterial means, is not material. Or we also use the word spiritual for it. I acquire the substantial form as Fido has that form, but not by losing myself. So in some sense, I become Fido-ness without losing myself. This is the profound nature of all knowledge. It's a unity of the knower and the known. It's a world apart. You say he's lost in his own world. That means he's off in his ideas, off in this world where you can unite things, you can unite with things. We know things by our ideas. So in this world of existence, this referential existence world, the idea is that which I and the thing unite. Unlike sensorial knowledge, which requires the operation of material elements, your memory, the sense organ itself, intellectual knowledge has to be purely spiritual because it's general knowledge. Remember, material things are specific. They're this color, this shape, that size. They aren't generally, you know, a circle is any radius. It's any color. Material things aren't. They're particular. Whatever they are, they are. They can't be the opposite at the same time. So intellectual knowledge is purely spiritual. It cannot be associated with any materiality whatsoever, because if it was, it would lose its general nature, the nature of being able to think of generalities, access generalities. From the immaterial power of man's intellect follows the immateriality of man's substantial form. If the substantial form, that which exists in me, that which this intellect is a part of, remember the accident is that which must inhere in something else. So the intellect must be a property of something else. It's a property of me. That substantial form that is me must be immaterial. Otherwise, it would discretize or concretize the general knowledge of your intellect, and it doesn't, because we have general ideas. So the act of abstraction, so you might say, well, look, 
I thought you said we got things from phantasms, and you said phantasms are partially immaterial. That's true. But the act of understanding itself does not need the phantasms, per se. It often uses them, and we'll get more into that in a second. The intellect, then, is a material power. It is a quality of the substance which is me or you. Remember that second accident of Aristotle. Material being must be particular. It is a form which must be a correlative to a particular matter. But the intellect would be a particular being, a quality of it was a quality of material being. So again, it must be that the immaterial substantial form of man is not material, immaterial. It must be spiritual. Wait. Hold on, you may say. The intellect doesn't operate independent of matter. You know, when you get brain damage, you know, there's a story of the guy who mistook his hat for his wife. So messed up that some people's brains get when they get in an accident. And when one is asleep, your reason isn't active, at least in the same way as when you're awake. And again, as I mentioned, we always have phantasms attending what we think. Well, you know, obviously Aristotle and St. Thomas would have thought of these things as well. They knew people that were hurt. They knew people that slept, including themselves. They were themselves could see that they were always having images. So we don't need, you know, modern science has not told us anything new that would change anything that they knew. So what happens here? Well, don't forget, we're talking now about an immaterial substantial form of a form-matter composite. We are a form-matter composite. It's just that our substantial form, unlike other forms, is purely immaterial. So, what does that mean? We must use our thinking, not our imagining, to understand this. We've got to be careful of the use of the imagination. We have to think deeply rather than think on the surface. And to really understand this, we have to correct our usage of images and sometimes be willing to not use them at all, only let them sit there in the background. They'll pop up, but don't use them as a crutch. And if you do use them, let that crutch fall away as soon as you're able to. The point here is the human soul is another word for the whole of man, if you will, form matter, is one. I'm one thing, not two things or four things. I'm one thing. You're one thing. You are a unity composed of parts and powers that work together. The substantial form informs the body to be a body, not a hunk of flesh. Remember when we said the animal died, it became a hunk of flesh. Before that, it was an animal. I am a soul animating a body, not a body and an isolated soul. So soul, again, here is used two different ways, one to mean all of man, the other to mean the substantial form. Man is one. It would not be a surprise then that there is interaction between the spiritual and physical parts, between the immaterial part and the material part. So an image that we can start with as a crutch that you should get beyond a metaphor that can maybe help you understand this is you can think of the man as the man-driver system. And we can think of the man-driver system as the body-soul. So this would be the body substantial form. This is the substantial form. This is the body. And so the analogy here, the metaphor here, is that if you're moving, that's like use of the intellect when you're driving forward. So remember, the chief power of the immaterial substantial form of man, in this case, is the intellect. So this guy who represents the immaterial substantial form, remember his chief power is his intellect. He can drive along and he can do all kinds of things in the car. If the car breaks down as a driver car system, if it's completely broken, he can't do anything. He's stuck. So as long as he's part of the driver car system, he's dependent on what that car is doing. And we'll talk more about that when we get into 
the next chapter. I want to come back to that because we need to emphasize the immaterial nature of the intellect a little bit more. To bring this home, I would just want to talk about things that will be in people's minds that maybe they've thought of sort of incohately and below the surface before this, and that is, have you ever thought about how long or why justice is? How much does it weigh? What color is it? Well, you know, that's ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? It's because justice is a general concept, and it exists in the intellect. It's immaterial. I can have two things in one place in my mind. I can say the apple is red. I can have this concept of apple, this concept of red, and in my idea, I can bring them together right on top of each other. I cannot do that in the material world. You know, from the baseball, and my son's bat and ball, if I hit the ball, that's how come I can hit it, because the ball and the bat won't be in the same place at the same time. That happens all the time in your mind. Ideas are put on top of each other. You can even reflect on yourself thinking about justice. So yourself is on top of justice. And you can reflect on reflecting. And so there's a profound difference between the immaterial aspect of man and the material aspect. And you can see that already by these sort of thinking before we did the more detailed look at it, and that was sort of a step back and say, look, I kind of knew this already. So what is truth? We're kind of honing in now on our answer to, remember we started this with Godel's theorem, and we wanted to put Godel in its right place. Remember, we resolved not to reject anything. We're not going to chop anything just to fit it into our head. We want to understand everything the way it is, conform ourselves to it. And so to do this, we need to understand this concept of being more. To answer the question, what is truth, and the subsidiary question about Godel, we need being. Being now is primary. Remember I said the first thing you know is that there is and is. Something exists. And being breaks up into two concepts, the noun and the verb. The noun concept, again, is anything that bees, anything that has existence or can have existence. And the verb concept is the act of being, the to be of the thing. To be is overflowing with intelligibility. It is the sun that blinds our vision if we look at it, but illuminates the thing if we look at the thing. If I look straight at the sun, that would hurt. But if I look at the grass, the sun illuminates it for me. Of course, this metaphor is weak because being is much more than that. Being is the ground of all to be. If this thing didn't have to be all over it, then it wouldn't exist. That's what it means to exist. Being infuses all. To be is primary, but to be something is to be a being. This, again, is one of those areas, like everything in this chapter, we're going to go over it again. So don't feel overwhelmed. Just try to get the general idea, connect it with your general common understanding, and you can gradually make it more and more part of your thinking. These ideas are very big, and they take a while to digest. So give yourself that while. It is true that existence is first, but we leave behind this when we start analyzing the whatness of a thing. For example, you know that a dog exists first, then you start thinking about the idea of dogness. But the dogs could have all been wiped out in a plague. So the existence is not contained in the concept. Judgment is a second act of the mind after the abstraction, whereby you take recourse to the senses to verify existence. For example, black holes. We have to decide among three possibilities. Do they actually exist? Because the concept doesn't contain existence. Could they exist? But don't? Or is it a pure, what we call, being of reason, i.e., doesn't even possibly exist? The concept alone doesn't tell us that or not, again. But the point is, is that 
A being of reason is a being, but it's only a being in my mind. It cannot exist outside my mind. So that's why we say being of reason, because it exists but only can exist in my mind. That's the third possibility. It is the whatness that is presented to the intellect. What Fido is, his essence is what's presented to the intellect. In short, being from the standpoint of human intelligibility is essence. If I look at a being and I ask, what is it from the standpoint of intelligibility? That's what I call essence. And so we see the subdivision. Being, anything that exists, and the noun concept and the verb. The to be and the noun breaks up into real being, that which exists or can exist, and the part that only exists in your mind or the part of reason. And let's give some examples of this. Real being would be like pigs, cats, flowers, red. Red is a real being. It's an accidental being, so it has to exist in another. And then beings of reasons. So mathematics is a unique category that we'll talk about a lot because this is so important in modern thinking. It's very important because of our own human nature. Mathematics is key to everything we do. But mathematics can be looked at in two ways. For example, minus two is a being of reason taken as an entity. We're the minus two cows. We're the minus two people. Well, there's no minus two people. There can't be minus two people. This is a being of reason. And it's composed of real things. It's composed of the abstract concept of taking away and the real being of two. There really are two things somewhere. But as most things in mathematics are beings of reason because looked at from entitative point of view. A category. Where's a category floating around? There's none. What about a subject or a predicate? You don't see a subject or a predicate just walking down the street. Prime matter, this thing we talked about or touched on earlier, and that is this pure potentiality that is preserved under all changes. That can't exist because potentiality only exists in reference to actuality. So potentiality with no reference to actuality is nonsense, but it's a being of reasons. Our minds are weak. We need these things to help us come to conclusions. Nothing. Nothing is a being of reason. Can nothing exist in the real world? No, because nothing is the absence of something, but it's a being of reason that we use. Propositions and Godel's theorem itself is, exists in the land of beings of reason. So we finally come to some idea that's going to help us classify the problem with Godel's theorem. We already saw part of the problem is looking at just in the realm of ideas as if all we know is our ideas. The secondary problem with Godel's theorem is it's in the land of beings of reason. So not only is it confined to ideas in your mind, but it's confined to a little tiny region within your mind. Beings of reasons are necessary because we have what I'll call barely an intellect. Yet the distance between not having an intellect and having one is infinite. Their intellect is barely an intellect because it depends on the sensorial knowledge having to abstract from sensorial knowledge. Being is intelligible then. The being of a thing is what we know. We become it in this referential existence, in this other world of the mind. The degree something is, to the degree something is, the more intelligible it is. The closer something is to nothing, the less understandable it is. Finding essence is not a logical exercise for the noun concept being then. We're trying to find out what something really is, not how to classify it in terms of things that can't even exist in reality, but what the thing really is. Logic has to do with manipulating symbols and the exercise of reason itself. The judgment and understanding has to do with getting to what the thing really is. Essence, then, is what a thing is as intelligible, loosely said. So we're trying to get to the essence of a thing, what the thing really is, what it makes it to be. 
what it is. Again, let's review. The form is that which a thing actually is, and matter is that which is capable of becoming. This apple is an apple and is potentially able to become part of me. This baseball is a ball is potentially able to be thrown, but it's not potentially able to become part of me. Two important things about our knowledge. We should note that material things are less understandable because they're less, because their being is less. And our intellect leaves behind the particular. So we have knowledge of the particular only through our senses. So we should keep in mind that this puts a limit. When we look at material things, we've left out the particular, but the material things nonetheless are the things we have to look at because they are the things that we know through our senses. This is why I say barely an intellect, because we have this capability of understanding, but yet we're limited to material things, knowing them directly. We know immaterial things only indirectly through the material. But those very material things, we can only know by abstracting, leaving behind the particular. So there's two ways, then, of looking at essence. One is intelligibility in and of itself, someone with a real intellect as opposed to barely an intellect, or to us. And then within this, we have as completed substance, form and matter, or just a substantial form. Two ways that we can split up essence. These two, and then within this one, we can split that up within two more subdivisions. So what are we going to define essence? We're going to define essence as what the thing is necessarily and primarily as the first principle of its intelligibility, its substantial form. Because that substantial form will include generic matter. It will include a reference. Once we understand what type of substantial form it is, we'll know that it references matter. So when we abstract something, we get its substantial form, and we learn more and more about it. At first, it's just vague what the being of that thing is. And then we gradually approach it, and we learn more deeply what the essence of that thing is, what its substantial form is. Individual nature presupposes essence. We need to talk about that because we got the nature. We left behind the particular. An example of this is Einstein is first a man, and then he's Jewish, German, and sometimes laughs and sometimes doesn't. If he wasn't a man, he wouldn't be able to have these other particular properties. So the essence is going to come first before the particulars. Existence now precedes essence. Remember we said again that there is and is is the first thing we know. The act of being must diffuse the essence itself, even for it to have an existence in our mind. Essence in the mind is only a possible being, but whatever being it has comes from its to be. Form is the act of the thing, as matter is the potency of it. Proportionally speaking, the existence of the thing is the act of the thing, and essence is its potentiality. The essence in your mind is just a potential being. Something has to give it an actual existence. So existence precedes essence. A way to see this is by Yogi Berra's, one of his many famed statements, it isn't over till it's over. It isn't over, and I give you a story to go with this. I was at my brother's basketball game, and the score was, oh, I forget what it was. It was horrible, and it was only like 10 minutes left. And everyone was saying, it's over. Let's go, so we don't have to hit the traffic. They were saying, it's over. Well, this is the essence. This is what's in your mind. It didn't have the active existence of actually being over yet. It turned out that the thing ended up being one of the most exciting games in the season. It went into like triple sudden death and they ended up winning. But the point is, it isn't over, it's just the essence. It takes the ex actual existence to make the essence from possible to actually existing. Existence precedes essence. 
What is truth? We're honing in on it now. We've got being behind us. We understand essence now. It's not mathematics alone. It's not knowing ideas alone. Truth is conformity of the mind with reality. This is our first definition of truth. We'll even deepen this further, but this fundamentally is the definition. This is what truth is, the conformity of the mind with reality. Logical propositions are true only in analogy with those things that are founded on the real. Rules are chosen. In chess, one picks a grid and decides on what the rules are. Reality is the way it is. We can't choose it. We have to just conform to it. Godel's theorem exists in this land of beings of reason. This is a made-up world, if you will. But it's still based on the real, because remember, all of our ideas are abstracted from the real things in the world, from our sensorial knowledge of real things. This is still interesting in its own right. It just means that it's a much smaller area of province than many think. Again, one of the things that it shows you is the radical interconnectedness of things in the world. Because Godel's theorem again says that within a system, there's no way to even prove the consistency of the system. And that's saying you've got to go outside of it to see that it makes any sense, which we know you have to go outside of it. You've got to go to the real world. So being, again, we have to really understand this to hit home our point about truth. Being is an ocean to be explored. It requires a primary effort from the mind, not from the sensorial powers, but from the mind. It's not algorithmic. It cannot work technical or problem-solving ability like puzzles or crossword will not help in this. It's not an automatic ability. It's looking, staring, absorbing, contemplating, seeing. And this mystery aspect needs to be pointed out. Mystery is sometimes used in a way to mean not intelligible. It's the opposite of this. It's so intelligible that it overwhelms our minimal intelligence capabilities. It is not unintelligible, it's super intelligible. And we talk about in there that being is not a genus, it's something that all things share. And we give a proof of why it cannot be a genus in the book, and I recommend you read that carefully. Again, because it's primary, it's not something that's defined, it's something that you see from which you define other things. Something that's defined means that you have one thing defined in terms of others, and if something is primary, it cannot be defined in terms of other things without it losing something of itself because those other things are derived from it. And so you can point to it and you can talk about it in a referential sense, but you cannot define it because it's primary. It's the thing you know first from which all other things are understood. Being is primary not by choice, like some other areas of science where one starts with a given hypothesis way up here. It's primary by actual fact. And this is an important thing to bring home in our cultural value of the sciences whereby you start high up with a principle on this level and you deduce from up there and you somehow forget that this principle is not fundamental and then you re later realize that it was a choice and you think all such principles are choice. Well, if that were true there would be no principles at all and this is one of those primary principles. And from this understanding of being one can see immediately, it's self-evident, every being is what it is. Every being is what it is. This is a statement of the interchangeability of being and intelligibility. It's not a tautology like x equals x. Every being is what it is is a statement of the interchangeability. To the degree something is, is the degree it's intelligible. And this brings up the transcendentals. Being is so huge we have to look at it from different angles. We've got to look at it from over here and then over there and then see what it looks like from each angle. So 
These things are called the transcendental, different aspects from which you look at being. Reality or thingness, unity. Identity is something set apart. The truth or intelligibility, the goodness. And beauty is the splendor of all these things together. And we're going to talk about most of these as time goes on. Again, don't be overwhelmed. We're going to go spiral through these things and we're going to use these as stepping stones. Just get what you can, think about them, but don't let the fact that you don't have them all at your fingertips yet or in your mind in a complete way yet disturb you because these are exercising muscles that you haven't ever used before. You can't expect them to be work in the way you would like them right immediately. So let's look at one of these though. Unity. A being is to the extent that it is one. Two comes after one and implicitly includes one. So the degree something is one is the degree that it is. The more unified a thing is, the more intelligible it is. The more interactions or interrelations between one thing and another within a thing, the more intelligible it is. Here we see the interchangeability of unity, intelligibility, and being, three of the transcendentals. We'll talk about this more later. This is a very important point of trying to tackle being by looking at it from different perspectives. So, all things are true. To the extent that they are, they are true. How so? Remember, conformity with the mind is the standard for truth. How can that be? Well, this is an important point. St. Thomas says, the mind's act of intellection itself constitutes and completes the relation of conformity, which is the nature of all truth. In short, if something is intelligible, it already must have the relation to a mind. It has an essential form that can be received. So there's already a relation in everything to be understood. Otherwise, they would not be able to be understood, and they are. So. This is a potential relation because you and I don't know all things at all times. And none of us individually, even collectively, know everything about everything. Yet it must be actual somewhere because remember, potentiality is only relative to something that actually is. If all things have a relation to a knowing mind, where does this relation have its being? This brings us to the principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason is that everything must have its reason for being in itself or in another. This is not deniable. Because if a thing has no reason for being, no intelligibility, it is not. So it either is or it isn't. If it is, then its reason is either borrowed reason or a reason in itself. So from this, we have to conclude that there must be a being that is the whole ground of its intelligibility. Otherwise, intelligibility would have no ground and thus things would be not intelligible. And they are intelligible. So there must be a being that is pure intelligibility. If it lacked any intelligibility, that lack would imply a reference to something outside of itself would mean it wouldn't explain itself. And so there must be something that is pure intelligibility. Now intelligibility implies intelligibility to someone, to some intellect. So there must be, by the same reasoning, an intellect that is pure intellect, pure active intellect. This being must be without shadow of non-being, containing all ideas as archetype. And this is a very quick sketch of the fourth proof of St. Thomas of the existence of God. And don't feel like, you again, here that you have to understand all this. We're going to go through this in depth in chapter 8. There's not enough philosophical underpinning for you to see all this proof. The proof is there. It's in a short sketch form, but it does need to be filled out for someone just filling out his muscles to see it at this point in its completeness. But you should be able to see it at some level already. 
But the point is here is we have this reference, this reference of all things basically asking for a reason for the intelligibility. I mean, we have this potential relation that we saw of things to knowing mind. And we said, how can this relation exist just floating out in nowhere? Well, it can't. It has to exist in a knowing mind. And we just have seen that that knowing mind is God. So he is most appropriately called truth. The conformity of the mind. So he is the perfect conformity of reality with itself. Because we said, remember, truth is the conformity of the mind with reality. And God is the conformity of reality with itself. So he is most perfectly called truth. Truth in all things is the actual relation to the knowing mind of God then. Because in God, all these archetypes, all these ideas are known in their completeness. So their actual relationship is in the knowing mind of God. Remember, we sought that. We found it. The potential relationship is with respect to us. And when we know it, that relationship is actualized. So we've come to the conclusion that the science before science is necessary. And we have actually done much of this in this first three, four chapters. And without the background of what we're going to do next, you're going to feel a little bit like in an ocean. But nonetheless, you still have verified conclusions in a way that cannot be refuted if they're understood and not use the modern sciences. The modern sciences, remember, if we use them, we would make the things less certain than they are rather than more certain because they would depend on things that, remember, we make this net of conclusions that hang on each other that we can't see in addition to the fact that they would depend on things that we haven't proved yet. So we started from the bottom. We're building our building from the bottom up so we can see all the structure. We've already saw them now calling for the specialized sciences. They didn't use them, but they started calling them for them already. We saw that when we did the disc, Fetchner's disc. Even when we talked about the apple, you sort of said to yourself probably, how can I understand more about how this happens and what this means to have a form of an apple become a form of myself? So we should see how the new philosophical conclusions mesh and are used in the modern sciences. We want to do that because we have all this modern scientific knowledge and we now have this new philosophical knowledge and we want to see how they meet. And that's what we're going to do in the next chapter. We're going to try and follow where this leads us to bringing in the specialized sciences a little bit, but even more than that, carrying forward our philosophical conclusions of this chapter and seeing where they lead and applying them so that we can understand more in the ins and outs of them. And then in the next chapter, really make this meshing happen, really force the philosophical point of view and the scientific point of view to come together and hit each other. And that is what we'll do in chapter six, when we'll look at the whole sciences and see how the specialized sciences find their place in the foundational sciences. And then finally, we'll ask questions that the specialized sciences bring up and call for the philosophical the underpinning sciences to answer questions. For example, the idea in quantum mechanics that the world doesn't exist when you're not looking at it. Those sorts of paradoxes can be unwound by using a sound philosophical underpinning, the actual one that we've developed here, which is the true one. The point now that I want to make is these are deep points, as I mentioned before. Meditate on them, stare at them, take time to think about them. They're profound, they take effort, they take contemplative still work. They cannot be done by a rote method of just writing down and turning the crank like you would say for long division. And the next chapter then will be on animals, men, and robots.
We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.